For those of you who may not know, this is the final resting place for six members of the 1970 Thundering Herd. The plane crash that took their lives was so severe, so, so absolute, that their bodies were unable to be identified. So they were buried here, together. Six players, six teammates, six sons of Marshall. This is our past, gentlemen. This is where we have been. This is how we got here. This is who we are today. I want to talk about our opponent this afternoon. They're bigger, faster, stronger, more experienced. And on paper, they're just better. And they know it, too. But I want to tell you something that they don't know. They don't know your heart. I do. I've seen it. You have shown it to me. You have shown this coaching staff, your teammates. You have shown yourselves just exactly who you are in here. When you take that field today, you've got to lay that heart on the line, man. From the soles of your feet, with every ounce of blood you've got in your body, lay it on the line until the final whistle blows. And if you do that, if you do that, we cannot lose. We may be behind on the scoreboard at the end of the game, but if you play like that, we cannot be defeated. And we came here today to remember. Six young men. And 69 others. Who will not be on the field with you today. But they will be watching. They'll be gritting their teeth with every snap of that football. You understand me? How you play today, from this moment on, is how you will be remembered. This is your opportunity to rise from these ashes and grab glory. We love the movies. We love to be inspired. We love to feel things that we wouldn't otherwise feel, to be moved, to be motivated, to be spurred on. Something that will make us do more, be more, think more, live more, risk more, and sacrifice more. And so far, this series is about five of the most inspirational stories in all of the Bible. We've looked at Esther, we've looked at 
David and Goliath. This week, we're on number three. And it's a scene of a life from a man that is, quite frankly, one of my personal favorites. His life has challenged my life. It has inspired my life. And it's the story of Daniel. Now, if you're familiar with his story at all, you're probably already thinking that I'm going to be talking about Daniel in the lion's den. Well, I hate to disappoint you, but you're wrong. I'm not going to look at him in the lion's den. I'm going to look at what got him into it, what led up to the lion's den. So let's dig in. The headline in Daniel's day was the conquest of the vast majority of the world by the king of Babylon, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 1 starts out this way. It says, During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. So you have the people of Israel. They've been on a long, downward, moral, and spiritual slide, eventually leading God to withdraw his protection and his blessing over them. He, God even allows Nebuchadnezzar to come in and conquer Israel. And the Babylonian style of conquest was more than just capturing them. It was to decimate their culture, forcing that Babylonian culture into their lives. But that, that wasn't all. They would take the best and the brightest of the people into their fold and to make them Babylonian. And this, this is what introduces us to Daniel. Let's keep reading. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchen. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. So here is Daniel, smart, good-looking, hand-picked as someone worth indoctrinating into the Babylonian culture and way of living, into their entire 
worldview. So how did he do? He was successful, wildly successful. He rose rapidly through the ranks. Eventually, the king organized the entire empire into 120 provinces and named a ruler over each of them. Daniel was one of those rulers. And then he took those 120 rulers and divided them into three groups of 40 and put a leader over each of those three groups. Daniel was one of those. He was leading one-third of the entire Babylonian empire. But that wasn't all. Let's continue reading. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Did you catch that? He was going to be named leader over everything, second in command to only the king himself. And that's, that's where things start to get interesting because those other administrators start to get jealous of Daniel. And here is what we see. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, long live King Darius, because King Darius had replaced King Nebuchadnezzar. We are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room. With his windows open to Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done giving thanks to his God. And there you have the three things, the three things about Daniel that have always inspired me. The first is that Daniel's life was marked by spiritual conviction. 
not just spiritual emotion, but raw conviction. For him, what he believed was real. Did you notice what his enemies said about him? Let's read it again. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. But they couldn't find anything, anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, completely trustworthy. So they concluded our only, only chance of finding ground for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. Daniel had a set of spiritual values, spiritual principles that operated and controlled his life. They weren't just in his life, they were over his life. And it's different than just being a person of integrity. He certainly was. He was faithful, responsible, and trustworthy. These other men knew that they couldn't find anything against him with regards to his integrity. But they thought if they could set up a challenge to make, make, force him into a choice between the Babylonian rules or following his God, they knew they knew that Daniel would always choose God. You see, that's how conviction works. It's doing something that's right, not just because it's beneficial. Spiritual conviction has to do with knowing the hills that you're willing to die on. And not just knowing those hills, but actually dying on them. See, People talk all the time about having hills that they're willing to die on. But conviction, conviction is actually identifying those hills and then actually dying on those hills. But that, that isn't the only thing that inspires me about Daniel's life. There's also his personal discipline. In verse 10, we read, we read this, we'll read it again. It says, But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room. With his windows open toward Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Did you catch that? Knelt down as usual? prayed three times a day as he had always done. Daniel lived a life not only of spiritual conviction, but a life of spiritual discipline. He, Daniel ordered his entire life so that he could pray. He had a set place. He had a set time. He built it into his schedule, became a priority to him. You see, very little will ever be accomplished in this life without discipline. There are millions of people who would like to write a book, but very few authors will ever see their words in print. Why is that? You see, writing is more than just 
skill. Writing takes discipline. John Grisham, famous author, before he wrote A Time to Kill, said that he wanted to be somebody who actually wrote a book, not somebody who just said he wanted to write a book. So he committed to write one page a day until that book, A Time to Kill, was finished. No matter what came up, he'd write one page a day. And that's why he is such a successful author. Lots of people have talent, but he had discipline. Again and again, discipline is what sets a life apart. Discipline by itself, though, isn't the only issue. Because I know people who are disciplined, but they're disciplined about superficial things, things that just don't matter. What marked Daniel's life was not just discipline, but discipline in the areas that mattered most. See, I know people who are extremely disciplined in areas, whether it be physical fitness or personal finance, whatever it may be, but their spiritual life is a wreck. Charles Hummel once wrote a book called The Tyranny of the Urgent, and it makes me think about that. So when, when Hummel was just a young man and just starting out, an experienced manager took him aside and gave him some important advice. This man told Hummel, your, your greatest danger is letting the urgent things crowd out the important things. In that book, The Tyranny of the Urgent, Hummel speaks of how we live our lives in constant tension between the urgent and the important. The important things, they don't have to be done today or, or even this week for that matter. Important things are like visiting friends, praying, studying your Bible, important things. Urgent things, on the other hand, scream at us for attention answer that phone, respond to that email or text message, meet that deadline. Those urgent screams for attention, as a result, they get all the attention. But life isn't just about the urgent things. There should be a conscious decision to determine what those important things are and then to do them. That's what discipline is about, exerting a self-imposed order onto your life needed to do what does not naturally get done. And no area of your life, of my life, is more important than our spiritual life. Daniel was that kind of man. He had established a set time and a set place for prayer in his life. See, the real evidence, the real test of what matters to you and what matters to me is what you discipline yourself for. If you say that your family or your marriage is important, if I look at your calendar, will I see your marriage or your family on your schedule? If you say that God is first in your life, when I look at your schedule, am I going to see time for God? 
I'm stepping on my own toes right now. You see, right about now, you're probably saying, and I've said it to myself too, that must be nice. Who has time for a life like that? I mean, I live in the real world of deadlines, sales goals, product launches, soccer, t-ball. I don't schedule my time. My time schedules me. I've been there. I feel that. I got a job during the day and I'm trying to lead a church otherwise. I don't have enough time. But, but that's why. That's why Daniel's life is so important to me and why I need his life to inspire me. Because he led a life that was far busier, more demanding than I ever have or ever will. Busier than any of us. Think about it. He was one of three men, the three top men in the entire government. He was personally responsible for 40 districts of the kingdom, one third of the entire nation. I once heard somebody put it this way, in order to put yourself in Daniel's shoes, you'd have to imagine yourself waking up and finding yourself governor of every state east of the Mississippi. None of us, none of us can hold a candle to Daniel's responsibilities and workload. And before you think that maybe his work suffered as a result, you remember what we read in verse 3? It said, Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. He wasn't too busy to pray. He was too busy not to pray. So are you. So am I. But there's one more mark of his life that has always stood out to me and has always been an inspiration to me. Beyond the conviction, beyond the discipline, there was a willful, a raw obedience. You see, it's one thing to have principles. It's another to actually live by those principles. I once heard someone say that you can know the Bible by the yard, but if you live it, by the inch, not going to do you much good. The real test is whether you are a person of willful obedience. If being obedient doesn't cost you anything, then it's not that big of an effort. But when it starts to cost you something, that's when that obedience is tested. Daniel had to choose whether to be faithful in obedience to God and lose his position, even his life, or to turn his back on God for the sake of his personal security. And every single one of us will face that same test. It seems counterintuitive disobey God and seemingly be rewarded, or obey God and pay the price. And so often, so often, we choose not to obey God. 
Are you going, are you going to live a life that obeys as long as it doesn't cost you something? Is that the kind of person that you want to be? Please tell me there's more to you than that, that, that you're deeper than that. Daniel was faced with a clear decision. Willfully obey and be killed. Or willfully disobey, save his skin, protect his position, and continue to live the good life. Now, we know what he did. He didn't even pause in making that decision. Let's, let me read it to you again. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room. With his windows open toward Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Some of you, some of you know how this turns out. He's thrown into that lion's den, and when they come back the next day, they find Daniel lying there peacefully without a scratch on him. God rescued him. God protected him, and then God restored him to power. But see, that isn't what stands out to me. That isn't what inspires me about Daniel's life. It's what got him into the, land, the lion's den that inspires me. It's that spiritual conviction, that spiritual discipline, and that spiritual obedience. That's what inspires me. That's what got him into the lion's den. And if we're honest, that's what got him out of it, too. That same conviction, discipline, and obedience is why God protected him and then restored him to power. And that's something we should never forget. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you. Thank you so much for the inspiration that Daniel can provide to our lives and for the inspiration that it has already and continues to provide for my life. That conviction, discipline, and obedience help us to, to follow those guidances, to make those same decisions. And though it may seem counterintuitive, help us to realize that you will protect us if we make those decisions for you. In Jesus' name, amen.